Okay, you're here with me, John Darcy, and this is a little bit of a special edition of The Jewel Case because I'm sitting here in our recording studio in Bangor for Bangor FM and I have with me the celebrated author from Bangor itself, himself, Colin Bateman. Notorious. Thanks for coming in, Colin. My pleasure. I was it's my at, favourite station. It is. We were talking about that. Your son <laughs> listens to Bangor FM regularly, I hear. He does, yeah. Would yeah. you like to give him a shout out? Uh, this is for Matthew. Get out of bed. <laughs> well, depending on what time we air this, is he no, in bed? No, no, it doesn't depend on what time you air it. <laughs> <laughs> well, hiya, Matthew. We hope you're uh, tuning in. And uh, if you want to tweet us or anything, we're on Twitter, Banger1079FM, or you can text in 07624801079. Find us on Facebook as well. I was at a very special event on uh, Wednesday evening. It was Colin's book launch in the Space Theatre in Bangor as part of Southeastern Regional College's new uh, big centre for performing arts. And it was the, the second event I've been to in the space. I was there for the first time last week for a gig for Open House Festival and you were there too. I was there too, yeah. What did you think of that? I loved it. It was just a pity the singer got laryngitis halfway through and, and <laughs> couldn't continue. This was Lindsay Lou and the Flatbellies, an amazing sort of bluegrass country but also like pop and soul and R&B, everything. Yeah, I, I, I surprised myself by enjoying it because normally, even though I'm involved with the Open House Festival, I, I hate, well, hate's maybe too strong a word, despise um, <laughs> anything that has banjos in it. and Right. Uh, so anything that goes too far in that direction really annoys me. It's well, you must like, have loved it when the banjo string broke halfway yes, through. Yes, it was perfect. But <laughs> any sort of long instrumentals and things like that, I just think, nah, couldn't be bothered. But when they were singing, they were fabulous. Mm, and what about that dobro player, the guy on the slide guitar? Yeah. He was amazing. He was mad as a box of frogs as we, well. You didn't have any banjos or any dobros or any guitars last night at your, uh, I was going to say your single launch, <laughs> your, your book launch. I'm, I'm thinking too much in music now. Uh, your book launch of your new book, Paper Cuts. And uh, you had some really good, fun, interesting stories, which I'm going to try and like squeeze out of you again. Uh, that's absolutely fine. Are you allowed to swear on this? Station? You are not. Okay. And, if, and please don't, because then I have to listen through and with a tooth comb and edit it all out. <laughs> I'll bear that in mind. It's good to know these things. Yeah, please do. Um, well, speaking of swearing, you did swear a little bit at the book launch, but I mean, that's just representative of your work. There's a lot, it, there's, there's a few blue words in your books. There are a few blue words. And how, how did that start? When when did you did you sort of like dip your toe in at the start and maybe say, oh, how much can I get away with? Uh, no, but I think basically these days you can get away with anything, you know, and certainly with books. I mean, there's no age rating on books. Mm. You don't have to be a certain, you know, no way with a movie, you have to be 15 or PG or whatever it is. With books, there's no age, there's no censorship. So, you know, basically you can do whatever you want. Um, and sometimes I do. Um and you know, if, if people, like, in fact, I was told a story last night that my my uncle, who actually died about two weeks ago at the age of ninety nine and ten months, uh, never read a single book that I wrote because his wife opened the first page of the first book she got and saw the F word and said, "You're not reading those." <laughs> so he never got to read any oh, of them. Poor uncle. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, so maybe you should start adding that little parental advisory sticker <laughs> on the yeah, books. Yeah, well, I should point out there's no swearing in the children's books. Or, oh, of or, course. There, or there's very little swearing. Yeah, tell me a little bit about the children's books, because this is interesting. I didn't actually know that you had written children's books until I did a little bit of research yesterday. Yeah, well, they're, they're, they, uh, there's eight of them. Uh, I mean, they were out quite a few years ago now. Um and most of them have, have gone out of print, which is the nature of books. You know, it's very hard to keep all books in print. But uh, these days, authors have got to be a little bit entrepreneurial as well. So what I've done in recent years is I, I, I republish the children's books myself. And I go off on the road and do big, long rock and roll style tours around schools in, in Northern Ireland, which is great fun. Wow, that sounds and it really amazing. gets uh, well, hopefully it gets kids excited and, and uh, gets them reading as well. So it's it's good fun for me. If, in case you've just tuned in, you're listening to me, John Darcy, with banger legend, living legend, Colin Bateman. <laughs> I was thinking there, what are you banger's biggest export? That's a terrible question to ask. Are you banger's? I think you might be banger's biggest export. No, you see, you, I was doing okay on that front and then... Snow Patrol came oh, along. Yes, that's see, right. And, 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 and they play uh, big gigs at Ward Park. So yeah, yeah, they get forty thousand to Ward Park, and I get a hundred to the Space Theatre. So um, <laughs> you know, 
You do the math, as they say. <laughs> well, I was just thinking there, you said uh, about getting children in the literature. What got you into words when um, you first started? Well, I, I who knows? I mean, I'm not, uh, you know, I was no different than any other child. You know, I, I loved reading and, I, I, you know, I was reading, uh, you know, a lot of books when I was younger, but nothing, you know, that I didn't show any extraordinary talent for anything or anything like that. And, uh, you know, I read a lot of Marvel comics. I was really into science fiction. Um but there, there was never, and I always loved writing stories and things like that, but there was never any expectation that, you know, I'd become a writer because people from Northern Ireland don't become writers, or at least that was the, the feeling I had. You know, we're just from, we're from Bangor, but how would we know how to do that? And uh, so even though I could dream about being a writer, I had no expectation of actually becoming one. And, and it was a long struggle to become one. You told a story last night at the book launch about how you were brought in was it by your father to the local newspaper and uh, to what you didn't realise at the time was a job interview? Yeah, he was quite sneaky about it, I suppose, but thank God he did. I mean, I was, what age would I have been? I was either 14 or 15. And uh, I mean, I was writing all the time. I was writing stories and science fiction stories and uh, things like that at home on a wee, you know, an old manual typewriter. Uh, but... Obviously, my my parents realised that you know, I loved writing, and and they thought, well, is there a way, you know, for him to to maybe down the line make a living out of this? And they thought, you know, go into the Spectator, uh, you know, the local paper, uh, you know, maybe he could be a journalist. And I had zero interest in being a journalist; I hadn't thought about it. But uh, my dad persuaded me to go in and talk to this nice woman who edited the paper, and she'll tell you all about what it's like to be a journalist. And I thought, well, okay, if you insist. But I thought it was just you know a chat. Uh, but she sat me down, uh, and actually there were there were two. They had two. I mean, the Spectator's a real sort of family newspaper, and it's very relaxed. And sure. um, there were two Labradors in the office, two brown Labradors, and one of them was called Caxton. And she said to me, "Have you any idea why that dog's called Caxton?" And I knew somewhere in the back of my mind that Caxton was one of the first printers, you know, hundreds of years ago. So I said this, uh, which must have uh, impressed her. And and then she she sat me down and said, "I want you to write three hundred words on why you want to be a journalist." Wow. And you know, of course, I didn't want to be a journalist. Um, but in you know one of my finest pieces of fiction, I wrote <laughs> three hundred words on why I wanted to be a journalist, and it, it it seemed to go down well. So and and basically from that, I was offered a job. Uh, but I had, I mean, I was fourteen or fifteen at this point. But I had to come, in fact, to this building, the the tech. Uh, right. As it was known, I uh, had to do a secretarial course and learn shorthand and typing for a year. Oh, wow. So I was in a class of women for a year learning shorthand and typing. And then okay. once I got those qualifications, I did an A-level in English here at the same time. And then as soon as I got those, uh, I joined the, the Spectator on more or less about my 17th birthday. So was that your first and only job interview at that stage? Um, it was definitely my first um, there. And funnily enough, I still do job interviews because I write for TV and you've uh-huh. got to go and you've got to pitch ideas and you've got to sell yourself. Uh, That's right. Every pitch is a little interview. And yeah. Stuff, so uh, in some way, and I'm still rubbish at doing it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was my only, I think, only proper job interview I've ever had. Do the TV and movie execs get you to write 300 words on why you want the job? <laughs> they get me to write about 50,000 words on why I want the job. <laughs> And uh, so you actually have a little bit of history with this building then at the Tech in Bangor. I do indeed. And I've also, um, I've taught creative writing here in the in the evenings. Um, so yeah, it's very much part of my growing up. Well, maybe we'll try and get you to have your own wee show here on Bangor FM at some stage. I don't think you can afford you. me. <laughs> What's the pay words. Like? Why do you want to be on the radio? <laughs> And uh, when you were teaching creative writing, was there any echoes of your own writing in the students? Um, not really echoes of my own writing, but the thing, I mean, I've, I have taught quite a lot these days and it's it's kind of universal that in any class that you have, without naming any names, there's going to be some one person who's going to be very good and there's going to be some person who's completely bonkers and the rest are somewhere in between that. Uh, and that seems to be, you know, wherever I go, you tend to find that. And maybe that's true of all teaching. I don't mm. know. But, um, you know, that there were certainly some some talented 
uh, writers in there. But the thing about writing is, uh, and people who come to creative writing classes and uh, maybe go on a Tuesday evening or something like that, um, you know, they have these dreams of being a writer, but quite often they they don't find the time to actually do the writing. Yeah. And 90% of it is finding the time to do the writing. You know, unless you've got a book to show to people or to send out, you know, nothing's going to happen. It's like uh, in, I guess, most creative pursuits, um, making that time to practice your own practice, produce the work, learn from your mistakes. Um, I mean, art, music, writing, filmmaking. It's, it's, uh, is it Malcolm Gladwell, I think, who has this theory that, you know, you have to put 10,000 hours of work into your your art uh, before you become an overnight success. It's the expert theory, isn't it? Yeah. That, uh, or is it, is it expert or virtuoso? That's one of the, one of those words. If you put so many thousands of hours, and w- w- what hours do you think you've clocked up over the years? Oh well, it's uh, well, it's it's funny because you know, as a writers probably have this reputation of you know, it's it's not really a hard job, and you can sit around thinking big thoughts, and you know, maybe put out a book every two years, and you know, and take your time and all that. But because I come from journalism where you're expected to work all the time, mm. you know, and if you finish a story, nobody sort of pats you in the back and says, well done, take the next week off. You know, you must be exhausted. You just go on to the next story. Yep, straight in. So yeah. I, because I went from journalism straight into the, you know, full-time writing, I, I kind of have that attitude where I've work to do, so I have to get up and do it. And I go into the office every day. It doesn't mean I, I produce good stuff every day, Um but I have to go into the office every day and I have to do a certain amount of writing. And so do you have office space or do you work in an office from home or how, how does that work and what's your daily routine? I um, I used to work a lot harder than I do now. And that's, <laughs> that's not down to success, that's down to laziness. Um, I yeah, have a, a, a study or office in my house and I I make the the 12-foot journey from my bedroom to my office every morning Um and, you know, I, I, I waste an awful lot of time. The internet is really annoying sometimes because it's, oh, it's, it's, so good. it's, it's great, <laughs> but it's, it's such a distraction. There's so many things you have to do. I mean, writers will find many, many excuses not to write. Oh, yeah. And it's hard to switch the internet off because, you know, Spielberg might be trying to contact you over Facebook. <laughs> Um, that's it. That, I mean, that's the main problem if I'm finding with Facebook now is that you're having to do your work on Facebook, yeah. taking off to-do lists, getting in contact with people, and then you end up just getting sucked into the vortex yeah, of, of rubbish GIFs and videos, cats yeah. and everything. Do you, do you have like a specific routine, like breakfast at this time, get on the desk at this time? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll nearly always be in the office for nine o'clock. So I mean, generally, I, I sort of keep the hours that I kept in The Spectator. When I worked there as a journalist, so you know, you 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 Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday are the busy days where you're really trying to get something done. And then, by the time Wednesday night comes around, you sort of think, well, it's almost the weekend, and you sort of slow down a bit. Um, but no, the the good thing is, generally speaking, no two weeks are the same. You know, um, I work on on sort of several parallel projects. You know, I'll have a book on the go, I'll have a screenplay on the go, I'll have a play on the go. Uh, and it's all down to then to to um, you know deadlines and, th- and targets you've got to meet. Well, that's the the thing about I guess once you're in the professional game is that the deadlines do keep you on your toes. Yeah. yeah. And do you find it's hard to get into the different head spaces of screenplay mode or uh, novel mode? Not not really. But I mean, I, I wouldn't work on three different things in the same day. I would say right from Monday to Wednesday, I've got to write part of this book or for for that week and I'll write a book next week as a screenplay the following week as a rewrite on something else uh so you've got to you know I have a lot of projects on the go but I, I can't always do them all at the same exactly the same time you said last night at the book launch that you've probably written over a book a year or roundabouts oh, yeah. probably more than one book a year yeah well there's there's some um, 34 books out there and the first book came out 21 years ago this year so uh, that's a good percentage it's good it's good well you see when you write um, what I generally do which is you know commercial fiction and and crime fiction you're expected to write a book every year Mm. you know press cycle yeah they they just you know 
people who, if people like your work, they want there to be a new book as regularly as possible. Sure. Uh, and then you put in on top of that, sometimes I write children's books. So that's, you know, out of those 34, eight of them would be children's books. Uh, and they're not any easier to write. No. You know, they're, they're the same length, more or less, um, and they take the same amount of effort. And it's not like you're writing down to children. You're just writing a story which has less sex and violence you know <laughs> and uh usually well i mean your your main over is full of sex and violence uh the sort of the crime novels with a tinge of comedy well there, there's uh, yeah there, there's not a huge amount of sex in them i must admit well what went wrong there uh, well you know it's, it's the research <laughs> um let's not go down that path was it working in the spectator and doing sort of the journalism that sort of you were finding like funny crime stories or how how'd you get into crime fiction in particular? It, it was a complete fluke. I was never interested in crime fiction. I was never interested in the so-called classics, mm-hmm. you know, of the great Irish writers and things like that. You know, I was always more into movies and TV and, and, you know, I would read, you know, just, just popular books, popular fiction. Um, and then, but I was always struggling to find a, a writing style um, and that's half the battle. If you can find a style to write in that you're comfortable with, uh, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll do okay. And then, uh, a girl I was going out with introduced me to these books by an American crime writer called Robert B. Parker. And, um, they were just so simply written and they had very short sentences and they had lots of dialogue and they were quite funny. And you could, and he had dozens of them out. So you could buy one and you could buy the whole, rest of the series and I just devoured them I just, but just thought they were brilliantly written and so simple and I th- as soon as I read them I thought well this is a bit like how I write in the paper you know it's funny it's 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 not full of huge words or long descriptions you know I could probably make a bash at writing in this style and that's what I did you know that's how I started writing my first book uh Divorcing Jack it was basically copying his style I think I think I sort of created my own style out of his style you know, so it wasn't just slavishly copying them. You know, by the time I got to finish the book, it was it was something different. But it's st- certainly what got me started writing. So Parker was a big influence. Um, any other writers that were sort of tickling your fancy in the early uh, days? Uh, not a huge amount. I mean, uh, books like um, Catch-22 by Joseph mm. Heller, um, you know, just for the sense of humour. You know, I love that sort of absurd sense of humour. And that's why, you know, I liked... You know Woody Allen movies and Monty yeah. Python and things like that. Um, so my my references would be um, mostly American rather than, like I say, you know Irish classics. So it would be American movies, it'd be American TV. Um, you know, and I was, you know, when I was, you know, nine or ten, I was sneaking off on Saturday afternoon to the cinema down down to the, the Tonic Cinema here in Bangor. You know, just by myself to watch the the matinees or the double bills, whatever was on because I was always fascinated by the movies. You said sort of part of that was um, absorbing Parker's work and his his sort of short sentences mm. and his punchy way of talking, absorbing sort of the American culture and cinema and TV. And then where where does the banger vernacular and sort of the Northern Irish vernacular work its way into? Well, you, 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 you adapt, you know, you speak it in your own way. Uh, and I think what was probably different about my books uh, or the early books was that no one had approached the subject of Northern Ireland the way that I was doing it. You know, there had been plenty of, you know, thrillers and crime novels uh, set in Northern Ireland, but they always tended to be written by visiting journalists from London, you know, who had, who were covering the Troubles. Yeah. Uh, and they're always very serious books. Uh, and I wanted to bring a bit of a sense of humour to it because we have a great sense of humour here. It's a very dark sense of humour, very yeah. sarcastic sort of sense of humour. I didn't want to write a comedy. You know, I wanted to write uh, a thriller, but I wanted it to reflect, you know, how we joke about things and, and how I took my sense of humour. Well, I mean, it's, it's part of our sense of humour as yeah. a, a, a part of a country or a country or a, a, a region yeah. um, that it's, everything gets laughed at in yeah. some sense or yeah. form. And like everything uh, becomes a, a punchline at yeah. the end of the day. Yeah, and, that's, and, and my trick, I suppose, was that, you know, I was probably the first to do that. It wasn't like I sat down and went, no one's done this before. <laughs> you know, I, it wasn't that calculating. Yeah. I couldn't be. Um but it's just the way you know the book developed and the style I wrote in this. So I suppose my own 
natural humour came out in it. But and then after it was finished, you know, you realise well, or other people realise that this is something different. This hasn't been done before. Yeah, and I guess what I find interesting is that it's in some ways essentially Northern Irish, but in other ways not essentially about Northern Ireland and what often gets bogged down in uh, literature or film or TV here that it has to be imbued with the troubles yeah. and all of our issues with our situation yeah. and all of that. Well, the, the problem sometimes is that um, you can think you can think too small sometimes. You know, if you're just writing for Northern Ireland, you know, it won't travel at all. You've got to think of the bigger picture, you know. The first thing you got you got to do is 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 tell a good story that people are going to be interested in, whether they're from here or they're from Germany or they're from Poland or Japan, anywhere. You know they've got to be able to get the story, and it's not not got to be so loaded in you know the local way of speaking that nobody gets it or understands it or understands the humor or understands the background. Uh, you got to explain the background up to a point without going over the top and turning it into a documentary. Uh, so it's all those things you've got to take into consideration. Um, otherwise you end up, uh, you know, if you think of a program like um, Give My Head Peace. For sure. You know, which is hugely successful mm-hmm. and hugely popular, but nobody outside of Northern Ireland would watch it. It just, it just, it just won't travel. Yeah. Uh, and you've got, you know, from my point of view, you need to think outside of that box because... Uh, great as it is to keep people here happy um it's such a small country it's such a small market that you could never you know make a success you know those guys can you know tv they do lots of live shows that's great but it, it just doesn't travel at all and i want to work on the bigger canvas i suppose but that being said you're book that you've just released that uh, the launch was on Wednesday night in the space and you're doing a signing in Eason's and Bangor on Saturday afternoon 2pm Paper Cuts is Paper the name Cuts, of the book indeed. is actually based in Bangor it is um, yeah. and we'll talk a little bit about what it actually entails in a minute but uh, do, do you feel like it while it's set in this local space mm. is it more universal in terms of its themes yeah. and well I think it's universal because Bangor was kind from most of the time was kind of outside of the troubles. Yeah, you know there wasn't a lot went on here. There's a few things over the years, but not a huge amount. Which means that the paper cuts are set in a in a local weekly newspaper. It's called the Bangor Express, uh, and obviously some of it is in, is informed by my experiences in the Spectator. But it's not a biography, and it's it's set in the present day. I mean, I haven't worked in the Spectator for you know nearly twenty years, so it's it's not about the Spectator. Um, but Local papers in any small town tend to be the same. Mm-hmm. You know, they they work in exactly the same way. So that's why, it, you know, it, because, and because it's not about the troubles, it could really be set anywhere. It's a story about people and what they get up to. I'm just thinking of the film Shipping News where Kevin Spacey exactly. <laughs> gets flung to this far end of Newfoundland That's or something right. and uh, starts to have to write the shipping reports. and different. Yeah, it's exactly like that, but better. <laughs> and <laughs> he you said modestly um, and, and incorrectly. <laughs> Great film, check it out. But uh, Paper Cuts is actually not not a singular novel, but m- more a composite of a couple of episodic Shorter yeah. works. Well, what what happened? Uh, it's quite a long story, but um, I was I was commissioned to write uh, a TV series um, called Scoop, um, and it was to be in the Irish language. It was for the um, TG Car, which is the Irish uh, language channel uh, in the, in the Republic of Ireland, uh, and broadcast up here as well. I don't speak any Irish, uh, but you know that they, they they knew I could write a, a script, uh, and there was yeah. a shortage of Irish language native speakers who can write scripts. Um, so they asked me to do it, and it turned into doing two full series of it. And I really loved doing it, and it, and it was and it was all set in this uh, weekly newspaper in West Belfast, and that really brought me back into the world of newspapers. Uh, but two things. You know, basically, nobody watches that channel. You know, it's a, it's a very much a niche market. And also, when you write TV scripts, you know, each script goes through maybe 10, 11, 12, you know, drafts of a script. Yeah. Um, and if you think I was doing, you know, eight episodes in the first series, six in the second series, so it's 14 multiplied by 12. You, you've got hundreds of scripts. So it means you have a huge amount of material, which, uh, you know, I hate to waste 
material. So I was sitting there with uh, the first script in the series and I was thinking, well, is there something I can do with this? And just for fun, I started turning it into a, a short story and I really enjoyed doing it. Uh, and this kind of coincided with me moving to a new publisher, uh, a publisher's called Head of Zeus, um, which isn't a great name for a publisher. Oh, Colin. Um, <laughs> um, but... Um, they, they, as well as doing print books, they, they sort of specialize in ebooks. And the great thing yeah. about ebooks is you can do them whatever length you want. You can do a mm-hmm. 2000 page book. You can do a 12 page book. It doesn't matter. It's all, it's all the same expense. Uh, and which is not much expense. So they can do it very cheaply. Uh, so I s- spoke to them and said, I've written this thing. Is there anything you can do with it? And they said, well, you know, they, they loved it when they read it. Um, uh, and said, have you got any more? And, it that then turned into me writing eight separate short stories, so a, a, a different story in each uh, episode, I suppose you would call it, or issue, um, but the same characters. So it's a bit like a weekly newspaper in that yeah. sense. It comes out every week, different stories, uh, but the same characters. And we decided to release them then as sing- eight single ebooks. Uh, so you have that choice of you know spending ninety nine p. To buy one, see if you like it or not, yeah. And then if you get hooked, you know you can you can download them one by one, or you can sort of gorge on them, sort of Netflix style, and, and do them all at once, or you can buy the book. Uh, and I think it works as a novel as well, but certainly you can read them as separate stories. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a good concept for a project to start with, and yeah. now it's coming. It's, I guess it's like an anthology now. The the actual book itself, paper cuts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think it works because the the characters. It almost it's a bit like a soap opera, and that the you know you're mm-hmm. interested in the characters' lives, and those continue from episode to episode. Is this maybe like your uh, TV writing coming back into the paper? Well, film? absolutely. That's exactly what it is. Um, and also there, then I've got the the choice of. Uh, you know, maybe coming up to Christmas, I can release a special Christmas story featuring the same characters, or I can do a whole new run of stories. Um, you know, it, it just gives you tremendous freedom. And again, it's an extension of what has been part of your writing, um, I guess, since since it began with Divorcing Jack, is these recurring characters. Mm. And uh, do you find, as you um, approach each book, you mentioned that your book launch, uh, that each book is sort of like a journey as you write it. It's not fully planned out at the start. Oh, yeah. And I guess part of your practice then is the emergence of the story as you go. And I mean, that that must be what keeps you interested or it makes it fun in a way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if I think if I knew the entire story before I started, you know, I wouldn't write it because it would just be really boring. You'd think, mm. right, I know what's going to happen 100,000 words from here. That's a lot of words to write if you know, you know, that's more like typing than, than writing. I like yeah. to just, you know, make it up as I go along. I mean, it doesn't always work uh, and you go down blind alleys and, and things like that. But I think, I think if you've read enough books or you've watched enough movies, it's sort of in your head as to how things work and how a plot should develop. And Well, there's uh, all these uh, like theories of the, the, the arc and there's yeah. the, the plot points where this happens and like an inciting incident and yeah. you know, your three act structure and all those all those little I guess they're tricks of the trade and uh, well it's, it's a lot of that is designed by creative writing teachers to sell yes. their their theories. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if it really works. I think um, you know you just concentrate on telling your story and you you, you know if if you're any good you'll have an idea of what works and what doesn't work and you'll know that something has to build towards the climax and you know you need different diverse characters and you need people to go on a journey but you know actually sitting setting you know sitting down and going well this is act 1 this is act 2 this is act 3 it just it just doesn't really work like that. It kills creativity, I think. Well, it's, it sounds like that was sort of naturally part of your writing process, even from the get-go. And maybe that emerged from the newspaper writing at the start, that uh, columns had to have a flow. Um, yeah, up, up to a point. It, it, you know, you, you, you had to fill a certain space, and you knew uh, that you had to do that every week. I, I think it probably it's more to do with uh, a misspent youth of, of watching an awful lot of movies. I, just, I just absorbing. Yeah, that just goes into your system. And, and you, you know, I think everyone's got a sense of how movies work, you know, the, the, but some of the, you know, the great artists are the ones who can step outside of that and, and create, you know, entirely different movies and, and, and unexpected things. Um, and maybe one day I'll get there. <laughs> uh, so speaking of those little, like, p- tricks and plot points and things, 
a lot of crime writers sort of have their well maybe the word trick makes it sound like maybe devalues it a little bit but uh they have like a for- formula also makes it sound like it's devaluing it but but certain crime writers um especially in that genre such a such a set yeah. genre yeah. for a lot of readers and writers uh they they have a formula that certain things happen and was, was it Agatha Christie's formula was decoded by a literature student recently do you not to like give the game away or anything, but is there certain things that you're looking at or thinking about as you're improvising the script through this writing process? Uh, not really. I mean, like I said, I don't, I don't plan out, so I don't really know what's coming, but I, I think it comes back to a thing that's in your head somewhere that you know how it should develop. Uh, but you're right. I mean, you know, publisher, publishers expect writers to come up with a, a, you know, certainly in the crime genre to come out with, you know, a character who can appear in, many books and mm-hmm. they'll know they're going to get the new book every Christmas or, um, and, um, in some ways I suppose that's, that's why paper cuts is actually, you know, it isn't a crime book. I've, I've kind of stepped away from the genre for a while because I need to refresh things. And I got a bit tired of, of just doing the same thing year in, year out. And I think you need to do that, you know, and that's why I work on so many different things. Uh, just to try and keep myself excited about what I do. So there's the novels and there's the screenplays and there's the screenplays for TV. It's a slight, slightly yep. different. But there's also the stage work also as well. Stage, yeah. And I actually saw Teenage Kicks the musical. Oh, did you? Uh, right. Up in Derry, London, Derry, Stoke City. One of the few. I, <laughs> there was, a, there was. I think it was, it was fairly well sold the day I was there. You know, I actually saw it on my birthday. Right. Like, was that the year of City of Culture? So yeah, that would have been was, yeah. th- two or three years ago. Yeah. Three or four. Uh, probably, probably two years ago, in fact. Yeah. And uh, I was first time I was in that theatre, and first time I had seen any of your stage work yeah. obviously as well but it was great that it was great um, I guess it was part of that lineage of musicals that combine um, pop songs from various artists that yeah. are threaded through with a little storyline yeah I think it's known as a jukebox musical jukebox is what they, musical. they call it um, <laughs> how did that all come about and uh, how did you pick the songs that went into it well that's uh, yeah what, what originally happened was I um came up with this idea of doing a musical about the undertones, okay, um, who are obviously from Derry, so it fitted in with the, the year yeah. of culture. And they'd had a tremendous amount of hits and loads of tracks. And, and Oh, pe- yeah, you could do two musicals People got hits. very excited about it. And um, so I wrote this uh, musical, you know, around the songs. You know, obviously I do the words and try and fit the songs in. Uh, and when I delivered it, we had there, there must have been, there was at least 20 undertone songs in it. Uh, and things were going along, and you know, these t- things take time to develop. Uh, but it got to be, you know, we were coming up to about a month before rehearsals were meant to begin. And we realized uh, that we didn't, we hadn't yet secured the rights to the undertone songs. <laughs> oh dear. Oh dear. And uh, we approached them, and out of, you know, whatever it was, the 20 songs, they gave us the rights to one song. I wonder would, what one it was. Well, yes. Um, <laughs> which would have been a very short musical or a very boring musical hearing it <laughs> 20 times in a row. Um, so we had to scramble. and I, But actually it was the best thing that could have happened because it was actually too many songs yeah. sounding vaguely similar, even if you reinterpret them. Um, you know, it was too much. Uh, but it it freed us to just go and look at any songs from that era, and, and that is my era, you know, the punk rock years. Uh, so I was able to pick out songs, uh, and then we set about you know seeing if we can get the rights to them. And generally, the ones we wanted, we got, uh, and we were able to knit it together into a story. So um, yeah, I was more than happy. It was a great experience. Um, I'm just sad. It, it, it was a big, expensive show. You know, yeah. I mean, my new play is a one woman show, which is cheap to put on sure but for a musical you need a cast of you know 10 or 15 people dancing and big so um uh, i i'm i'm sort of disappointed it didn't have a it hasn't yet had a further life beyond Derry. you know i would love to be on in belfast or to travel around the world uh but you know that's that's not my call All i can do is write the best i can well it's there and um, eventually i'm sure it'll get picked up um, you, you never know you never know uh, my highlight was um 
the bit where uh, I think someone fancied someone they shouldn't have fancied right. and uh, the buzzcocks came on and they all ended up with like jazz hands have you ever fallen in love with someone <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't have fallen in love with Yeah, I mean, some of the, the interpretations of the songs were really And there was a live surprising. band, like, oh, uh, band chugging out, like, yeah. proper punk accompaniments. Yeah, yeah. I think the, um, it, it was an odd thing because um, in some respects it kind of fell between two stools because, you know, there were punks going along to expecting basically a punk concert, and it wasn't that. Which it couldn't be. No. And I know uh, one of the undertones came along to it, and um, he didn't like it. But his teenage daughter, who was with him, absolutely loved it. Yeah. So that was. Well, we're now in sort of the Glee era and things like that. So, I mean, kids love all that, um, like theatricality. But I guess if you're sort of um, have been to punk gigs your whole life, it's maybe a little bit um, not raw. No, it's a wee wee bit too. I mean, there's a certain campness goes with musicals. It's part of the process. Yeah. So, um, but you know, I've, I've fond memories of it. Well, um, on the note of music, this is The Jewel Case, uh, mm-hmm. and I like to sort of dig into people's music collection and their taste. And uh, again, if you've just tuned in, you're on Bangor FM. It's a Jewel Case takeover with me, John Darcy, and the wonderful author, Colin Bateman, has joined me to talk about his recent work and now to talk about his music taste. So you mentioned growing up in Bangor as you were starting your writing uh, at The Spectator. You were a bit of a punk I was a, I was a very nice banger punk. You were a nice, a well-behaved banger <laughs> punk with your with your jeans turned up. Uh, well, I had my drain pipes on, but uh, drain pipe trousers that is, and um, but mummy wouldn't let me get my hair spiked. No, uh, no safety pin through the no, ear. No, no, it'd be far too painful. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I, I know when I was going to to work as a journalist, I had my like uh, like black, always dressed in black. Still, oh look, still do. Um, but uh, you know, I had my sort of sports jacket on but would like have like a clash badge in the lapel of it so yeah. i was i was uh, proudly boasting of my my punk interests then and what bands were you into you you mentioned a story uh at the book launch about an early article that was was it just your first article that was about my first music? article yeah yeah it was about the sex pistols and um uh their first album uh and i I don't even know if I can say the name of it on this because it's <laughs> never got a, mind the uh, testicles. The, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I think testicles is worse than. I thought um, it was the scientific but, term. But anyway, the B word. <laughs> you can beep that out. Um, the B word. Um, you know, I wrote an article about this album. Uh, uh, it had been banned everywhere when it came out. Yeah. Uh, and but once the fuss had died down, all those shops that had banned it were selling it again. Oh, of course. I thought this is quite hypocritical and, and being a, a you know, a, a teenager with strong views and a punk, you know, I, I wrote an article about this and it was the first one with my name on it. Um but the ed- when I handed it in, I I didn't write the B word. You know, I just used B dot 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 up because I presumed that, you know, a little local paper wouldn't use language like that. Sure. And the editor of the was called Annie Annie Roycroft and and um, you know she was you know in her fifties or whatever and very straight laced and um, a Sunday school teacher and you know I just presumed that she wouldn't allow it but she asked me what it was and I said what it was she said if that's what it's called that's what goes in and that that was a uh, quite an amazing moment you know to look back on um, because it it really freed me up to to say you know to think you know don't presume there are rules. You know, write exactly what you want to write, and then fight your battles after that. Um, don't ask for permission, yeah, for forgiveness, and you don't expect that just from a, a little local paper, you yeah. know. But they gave me tremendous freedom to write whatever I wanted to write. So I was writing about punk rock quite a lot, and I was going to all the gigs in Belfast, um, and the bands. You know, I like. I mean, the first live gig I ever saw was by a band called Rudy, mm. uh, who were just, you know, the the very thought that 
a band from Belfast could make a sound like that. You know, I always think this comes from London or it comes from somewhere else, but they were fabulous. Um, and, you know, they brought their own single out and it was a fabulous single. And, you know, I'm just really impressed by that. And, but I was also into, you know, I was into the Sex Pistols and I was into the Clash. Um, and, and it's funny how your life sort of goes full circle because, you know, the, if I was pushed to say, who my favorite band was, I would say The Clash. Yeah. And then, you know, you you fast forward from your teenage years to when Divorcing Jack was being made and and Joe Strummer, the lead singer from The Clash, wrote a song called Divorcing Jack for the for the movie. That's right. And then it got rejected from the movie. Boo. Yeah. But he sent me a copy of it. And, you know, it's never been released anywhere. So I've still I've got wow. my own private Clash song, at least in my head, it's a Clash song. But, well, um, I, I was reading about that online. Was it played on radio one time? It was played. Uh, yeah, I brought it up to Radio Wellstrom one time, so it, you may be able to find it. But and it's a very rough, scratchy copy, so it's yeah. not. It's not. It's like a demo. Type, yeah, type it is a demo, and uh, it had. I I must got, be your favorite song. Well, I'd guarded it so jealously that actually the quality of the tape had had gone down over the years. Uh, <laughs> so by the time I transferred the CD, it was very hissy. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe it's not the best song in the world, but it's, you know, it's mine. And Joe Strummer. Uh, Joe Strummer and one of the guys from Blur play on it. Oh, wow. So, um can't remember which one now. Um, bass player. You'll have to just text them and ask. Yeah. Them. I know. <laughs> text Damon and check. That's so funny. And uh, so what was the reason that the track was turned down by I, the production company? Well, I think they... I think because it was a rough demo and, and you know, I think Joe Strummer's voice, um, he actually wrote it intending it for another, for a country and Western singer from America to sing it. Uh, I've just forgotten her name for the moment. Um, she knew nothing about it. And I, I spoke to her, you know, a few years afterwards and she was really surprised. Um, but I think it was just a, a very rough quality demo they sent in uh, and, and they were of a certain generation where they thought, oh, it's very rough. They just couldn't imagine the actual produced yeah. version. And instead they reformed, uh, I don't know if you will know these people, but they reformed a group called the Nolan Sisters. Oh, yeah. Who... Of loose women theme. Yes, yes. Um, who were an appalling sort of cabaret act. Um, but they reformed them and used them on the soundtrack instead. So Which, you have we have Colin Bateman to blame for the Nolan sisters reformation. Uh, yeah, more or less. That's my <laughs> claim to it's my street credibility ruined for life. <laughs> Uh, that you heard it here first on Bangor <laughs> FM. <laughs> Colin Bateman Street Cred, Ruin for Life. What about, so Rudy, obviously one of your um, maybe choice local acts. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of their work. My dad had uh, all the seven inch singles uh, around the house when I was growing up. So I was uh, scratching them when I didn't really know how to work a record player, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately yeah. for dad. And some of the old T-shirts, actually, I dug up as really? well, but they're actually all too small for me because he, it was the 70s and people were really skinny then, apparently. <laughs> Undernourished, yeah. <laughs> what Hard other times. bands locally were you interested in? Um, well, actually, I, I mean, I quite like Stiff Little Finger. I'm going to see them in Nottingham in March. Uh, and I managed several bands as well. I have no musical ability. You okay. were in the business. No, the I managed business. several bands. <laughs> um, it was clear that I wasn't in the business. Um, I was, there was a banger band called The Coordinates. Right. We, we were a, a you know a punk band, and I I took them to international glory. Wow. Um, or, in fact, they split up while recording their first single. Um, <laughs> Because I think the drummer was on Magic Mushrooms at the time. Um, and then, uh, having failed in terribly with them, I managed a band called Dogmatic Element uh, and also took them to international failure. And um, <laughs> Any recordings exist of any of these we, bands? We did uh, two singles with Dogmatic Element. Wow. Um, and they're, they're still 
propping up my bed. <laughs> uh, they were not a huge success. I mean, they were they were absolutely fine for their time, and there there were talented uh, people in the bands. And in fact, um, the lead singer of Dogmatic Element for the first single, uh, Alison Gordon's a good friend of mine, and, and she and her partner run the Open House Festival. Oh yeah! So you know we we go back many years. There you go with banger connections. Oh yeah, and uh, banger mafia. Did you have much connection to the alternative Ulster magazine or zine? Um, that obviously the song was song was named after. Or it was named after the song. I forget what happened. Was um, one of my best friends was uh, Gavin Martin. We lived quite close together, uh, and he started. He was the one who introduced me to punk rock. You know, he, he was at Bangor Grammar School with me and he was always into his music and he was the first person to bring in tapes of all these American punk bands, yeah. even before British punk really got started. Um, and then he started this fanzine, Alternative Ulster. And um, and then he originally, the, the, the Stiff Little Fingers single was going to be released as a free flexi disc with okay. the fanzine. Uh, that didn't work out and obviously they signed with the label and, and, and released it after that but um, he was uh, you know Gavin was instrumental in, in introducing music or, or you know promoting punk to a whole generation here and he had to get up and go to go out and print this and get it all sorted out and uh, so he was a real you know, inspiration away back then. It is amazing how much energy there was in that punk scene. As I say, my dad, um, it, it was his era mm-hmm. and I'm just immensely jealous of that because when I was growing up, there was a sort of burgeoning music scene, but because I think so much energy had been lost uh, yeah. in the 80s and 90s in the local music scene somehow. I don't know if that was part of the troubles and the city centre thing. No, I mean, uh, the trouble, the trouble, the I can remember, I mean, going to the early punk gigs in Belfast when when bands were were coming over, uh, and getting the train up to Belfast from Bangor with a whole crowd of punks. Um, and Belfast city centre was completely empty, and there's big metal gates around it. You had to be searched before you went through into the city centre, and you know all these punks would go into a chip shop before, you know, before the gig, and the staff would come and remove all the cutlery and things like that. <laughs> just just a weird. So I guess they stuck them through their ear. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so it was, uh, but it was it was a very exciting time, and and also I think you know I did my bit to to influence things in that you know when Gavin was doing alternative Ulster, he would come round to my house, uh, and me being a total nerd and into science fiction, he would look at my science fiction fanzines. And take right. ideas for how they were laid out and designed oh. and things like that and, and feed them into his. So it was all sort of interconnected. Well, this is how this works. Little uh, little little bits from this pot and this pot yeah. all get melded together. That's and that's, that's what builds to the Yeah, you don't suddenly sit down and create an entire movement overnight. It's all a, you know, it's a combination of influences. Um, right now, what's influencing you musically? Right now? Very little. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm I haven't really. I mean, I love music, but I have. I don't think my tastes have moved on hugely since um, the seventies. Um, so I would still be into my punk. I would still, you know, I always liked Bruce Springsteen, uh, Van Morrison. Um, Van Morrison's hopefully got a song on on the the movie soundtrack that we're we're for the new movie I've I've just done about Paisley and McGinnis. Well, tell us a little about that bit about that. Um, the new movie is called The Journey. Um, it's about the relationship between um, Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness. And it's a, it's a drama. It's quite a serious drama, but there are there are some laughs in it. And it was all filmed here in October past and uh, all went fabulously well. And hopefully will be out uh, in the autumn. It's in post-production at the moment. And in fact, I should be working on some lines from it as I'm speaking to you but I I'm, appreciate you setting the time aside for I'm us here in Bangor FM practicing work avoidance at the moment <laughs> this is the advice that you were giving us earlier about just write just do yeah, it you're yeah. not doing it right oh, now of course not no <laughs> no uh, yeah I know practice what you preach really is what I should be doing but uh, here I am I told you it was my favourite station I couldn't deny no no but we're very grateful to have you and um it's been great chatting and great hearing about your influences and how you got started. I find that story really interesting. And uh, I know there's no quick fix. There's no just easy way to get into it. But if you had any advice for young 
writers or even young actors or creatives in general. There's a ton working right now yeah. over in that space building uh, at Southeastern Regional College here in Bangor. And we're broadcasting out of Cirque's main campus here now in Bangor FM. What would you tell them? I would say that absolutely anything is possible because it only takes one person to like what you do to absolutely change your life. Um, when it comes to, you know, something like writing, you know, the, the advice is absolutely you need to do the work. You need to sit down and do it because if you haven't got something to show people, you know, you, nothing is ever going to happen. Um, but like I say, it, and it can take years you know, I was talking about that, you know, one person who likes your work. It can take years to find that person. You know, a lot of it is down to luck. Uh, but if you haven't done the work in the first place, it's, it's definitely not going to happen. So you got to do the work and then get it out there and then hope that something happens. Uh, and don't just rely on one single piece of work. Get as much work out there as you possibly can. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I'm sort of late in my career, but you know, things still happen to me that completely surprise me, that completely come out of the blue. Um, I mean, when I wrote that the script for this movie, you know, I didn't think anyone was ever going to make a movie about Paisley and McGuinness. I mean, yeah, certainly might have interest in Northern Ireland, but, you know, where's the international interest in that? And that's what you need for a movie. But when I wrote the script, you know, within a month of, of handing the script in, I was sitting in Liam Neeson's apartment in New York while he, while he read it. <laughs> He read it to Sir Kenneth Branagh, you know, and I'm just sitting there going, what on earth is going on here? This is very surreal. Wow. Uh, and as it happened, it didn't work out with them to starring at it, um, just due to time and, you know, they're obviously very busy people, but we got a fantastic cast. But uh, I'm back to saying, you just don't know what's around the corner. You know, anything can happen. And so if you've done the work, work yeah. and you've prepared at least it gives you the best possible chance for something to happen. Mm, and keep your ears to the ground and your eyes open yep, for that absolutely. opportunity. Well, great, Colin. Thanks again. Um, if you have just tuned in and don't don't know what's going on, uh, you've been listening to Bangor FM with me, John Darcy. It's a little special edition of The Jewel Case and I'm joined by the very graceful and wonderful Colin Bateman who's just released his new novel. Well, I'm going to call it an anthology of short No, notes. no, it's a novel. You put people <laughs> off by saying anthology. Okay, sorry. It's an <laughs> it's a novel Paper Cuts by Colin Bateman and you'll be signing some copies in Eason's and Bangor on Saturday at 2pm that's correct well uh, if you want to see Colin and uh, get your book signed go to Eason's and Bangor Saturday 2pm Colin thanks again and uh, I think we'll play My out pleasure. with a little track of your choice any in, any requests um, I think I would like to hear Badlands by Bruce Springsteen. Oh, good choice. One of my favourites. (laughs) Thanks again, Colin, and I'll see you soon. My pleasure. (laughs) 